This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Man, we are trekking through the book of Hebrews little by little, and it is complex, it is beautiful, and every verse can be held up to the light and turned like examining a gem. And tonight we get to look at a bunch of verses like that. Hebrews is pushing the truth that we must not walk away from Christ because he is the only way to salvation. We have discussed that Jesus is greater than all those who brought God's word before. The prophets brought God's word, but Jesus is greater than the prophets. The angels deliver God's word, but Jesus is greater than the angels. And then Jesus, as we discussed last week, became man. He took on humanity for the sake of our salvation. And tonight, we're looking at a third person that Jesus is superior to, and that is Moses. We're going to take a look at two different teams tonight. And when I think about teams, it gives me a throwback to, at least for me, it wasn't too long ago, but it was the 1998-1999 NBA season. And I had just become a beginning basketball fan for no reason other than I wanted to try something new. Four foot eight version of me jumped on the school basketball team. I didn't know the rules. I didn't know the names of teams or anything, but I figured if I'm going to play basketball, I should be following a team. So I turned on the TV, and the first basketball game I came to, I was like, all right, one of these teams is going to be my team. And so I watched them play, and I noticed this one team wearing black and white was the underdogs the whole game until the last 11 seconds. And the ball is passed in, and a man named Sean Elliott from the very widest part of the right side of the court sinks a three-pointer to win the game by one point. But they had to do a zoom-in on his heels because as he caught the ball, he stepped and fumbled, and his toes were inbounds, but his heels were out of bounds. And they zoomed in to find out that his heels never came down as he took his shot. And I was like, that's my team. And come to find out, it was the San Antonio Spurs. And that season, I followed them all the way to the championships. Yeah! because of me, obviously. Picking the right team is so much more important than just a basketball game. When it comes to a basketball game, the best or worst that can happen is you get to have an after party or people whine about how bad the refs are. But picking your team in other places in life can be the difference between life and death. And tonight, I want to challenge you to choose the right team tonight. So first, we're going to compare the leaders of two different teams, Team Moses and Team Jesus. And then we're going to look at the outcome of the followers of Team Moses. Then we're going to look at the outcome of the followers for Team Jesus. And then we're going to ask the question, how do you join the team for Team Jesus? But to understand 
Hebrews 3 and 4 that we're going to look at tonight, we're going to have to go back like we did last week, back to Genesis. And tonight it briefly begins with Abraham. God pulled this guy out of nowheresville. And he called Abraham out and said, Abraham, I'm picking you. I am going to turn your family into a family that's so big it'll be a nation. Then I'm going to bring your nation-sized family and give them a land that they're going to thrive in. And Abraham believed God. He had no idea how it was going to happen, but he believed anyway. Now, Abraham's great-grandchildren were suddenly oppressed by a famine that came through where they were living to the point that their family, their blooming family, was going to die of starvation. But Abraham's great-great-grandson, Joseph, through miraculous events in his life, brings his family to Egypt where the whole family is saved. Now, while in Egypt, their family just blossomed. They recreated like crazy. So much so that the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, got nervous and thought, this family's getting so big, they're going to try to overthrow the government at some point. So he enslaved them. And then they kept multiplying and multiplying so that a pharaoh further down the road is like, I don't know what these slaves are doing. They're working all day. They're making babies all night. They're just expanding like crazy. So he came up with a new plan. He ordered that every male child born is thrown into the Nile River to drown, to try to create some population stunting. But one baby was saved. The baby's name was Moses. And God would use Moses to march right into the presence of Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let God's people go out of slavery and into the wilderness where they could worship God. And every time the Pharaoh refused, God would bring a miraculous plague, something so crazy that Pharaoh and all his magicians were blown away by. And God, one by one, was just showing off and flexing on the Egyptian gods, their little idols, until finally the last plague was that all the firstborn of the Egyptians died in the middle of the night, which is God's judgment for Pharaoh's genocide against the babies all those years ago. And so in the middle of the night, Pharaoh drives them out. He doesn't just release them. He drives them out of Egypt. So the, the, the Israelites, Abraham's family, now at 600,000 men, plus the families of each of those men, are heading out in the middle of the night, and they only own whatever they can carry. So they get out into the wilderness, and they're only in the wilderness a short time when they come up to the Red Sea. And with their backs against the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind, grabs all of his army and his chariots, and they rush at the Hebrews to, to do some damage and re-enslave them. And God cuts the Red Sea in half so that there was a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right. And by a path of dry land, estimates of two point something million people pass through the Red Sea on the other side. And as Pharaoh and his army charges in after them, God folds the water back over them, defeating the army. And the Israelites have seen all of this. Three days later, they had just sung these great songs about how powerful God was and how faithful he was and how loving he was. And three days later, they complain to Moses. Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? 
And God says, have they not seen all that I've done? And then God brings them further into the wilderness, and they complain, we have no food, and God gives them bread from heaven, manna. And then further into the wilderness, and they complain a third time, we have no water. And when they complain this third time, they get so angry at Moses, they threaten to kill Moses. And God takes note. This is the heart of the people that I've led out of Egypt. And Moses, as they're leaving, names the place with a name that reminds everyone of how they challenged God. They doubted him. They rebelled against him. And he gave them the names of Massa and Meribah, which mean provoking and rebellion. And that place forever was known as provoking and rebellion. So God faithfully brings them, keeping his promises, to this land. He had made them a nation, now he brings them to this land, and they're standing on the border of the land. And they look at the people on the other side, and again, they complain. God, they're so big. Moses, we can't do this. They're going to wipe us out. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. And they turn on Moses again. It says that they picked up stones to stone Moses. They're not only grumbling and complaining against God, their anger is being poured out against the man of God. And God said, all right. By now, it was 10 times they complained against God. And God said, all right, I am wiping this generation out. And Moses, I'm just going to make a new family out of you and out of your family. And Moses, with great love, unexplainable love, goes before God on his face and says, God, don't do it. Don't wipe them out. And God, because he picked the kind of man that would intercede for him, God chose a different means. He didn't have immediate judgment by wiping them out. Instead, God led them in the wilderness. And he said, I'm going to lead them in the wilderness for 40 years. And every adult that came out of Egypt in those 40 years is going to die off. Their bodies will fall in the wilderness. And their children, those who are not adults yet, I'm going to bring their children back in 40 years, and then I'll give you the land. And so for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness, they covered the wilderness with 600,000 graves or more. And God brought them back. And he's going to lead them into this promised land, no longer under Moses, but under a man named Joshua. Now, that long story that I just gave you was sung about quite a bit later, about 500 years later. David wrote a song remembering the rebellion of the people and God's punishment of leading them those 40 years in the wilderness. That was Psalm 95. And so if you go look it up later, read it, it's a beautiful psalm, but we're going to see Psalm 95 woven in to our text tonight. So I wanted you to be able to recognize what that story was about. So step one, we're going to compare the leaders of Team Moses and Team Jesus. Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him. So who is Jesus? He's our first team leader, and we're introduced to the first team. These holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. That's team Jesus, and we have the leader. 
And who is the leader? He is both the, the apostle and he's the priest. That means that he is sent by God, the apostle. So he comes to us on behalf of God, but he's also the priest, which means he goes to God on behalf of us. This is who Jesus is. Consider Jesus. Let's jump down to verse two. Who is faithful to God, faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in God's house. So who's our second leader? We have Team Moses, Israel's greatest national hero. In fact, Moses was known for his faithfulness to God. Over 22 times between chapters 35 and 40, it says that Moses was faithful. He was a faithful prophet. He was a faithful intercessor. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So what is God's house? Anyone? What is God's house? His follower. Right on. Good job, Sebastian. God's house is God's people. The word here for house does not mean a building. It means a household, a family, the family of God. So Moses, just like Jesus, was faithful in the family of God. Verse three, for Jesus has been counted worthy and of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So he makes this big statement. Jesus is worthy of more glory, more honor than even Moses, this big national hero. And if he's going to make a big statement like that, he's going to need some evidences. So his first proof is that Moses was a member of the house, but Jesus was the builder of the house. I love it. Jude 1.5 actually says that Jesus saved them out of Egypt. Jesus was the one who parted the Red Sea. Jesus gave them the law. Jesus defeated their enemies. Jesus led them into the promised land. So Moses was a member of the family, but Jesus was the builder of the family. Let's keep going. Verse three, Jesus has been counted worthy, more worthy of glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house and more honor than the house itself. Verse four, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So who is Moses? He was a servant of God. He was a servant in the house. But Jesus is the son and the heir of the house. Jesus is Lord over the house. And then I love this phrase. It says that, that he, Moses testified to the things to be spoken of later. The third proof. The first proof is that Moses was in the house. Jesus was the builder of the house. The second proof was that Moses was a servant in the house, but Jesus was the Lord over it. And the third proof is that Moses is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Think about a shadow. The shadow is evidence of something of substance, Right? The shadow is Moses, but the thing that, that is casting the shadow, the thing of substance that's real, that's tangible, is the one yet to come, and that's Jesus. Imagine a scuba diver, and he's swimming in the water. Now let's pretend like he has a school of jellyfish over his head, so he can't really look up, but he's talking to the boat, and he's trying to get back before his air runs out. So this is becoming a, a critical situation. So the boat calls down to him and gives him two commands. The first command is, look far ahead, 
past the school of jellyfish, and you will see on the ocean floor a dark oval circle or dark oval shadow. The shadow of the boat. Swim towards it. So our faithful scuba diver is like, I'm going. So he's swimming. He's following command number one. He's being faithful. He's swimming towards this shadow. But he can't just stay focused on the shadow or he'll drown underwater. The second command has to come through at just the right time to say, now swim up. Swim towards the boat of salvation that's casting the shadow underneath. And for a short time, if you can follow my analogy, God gave Israel Moses and gave them all these laws of the Old Testament and the sacrifices and the sacrificial laws because they were shadows. And God is saying, these are good. They're helpful. They're directional. I'm going to get you somewhere, but you can't stay there. A shadow can't save. And there came a second command by a superior messenger, Jesus, who brought a second message, and that was, it's time to swim towards the substance, to put your faith into what can actually save, swim up. So this house is the people of God. Let's continue in verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, So Moses was a servant, but Christ is the son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, I want to point out something. If you're following me closely, you might read this phrase, if we hold fast. And I want to try to bring some clarity to that. Because you might start thinking, if we hold fast means I can only be saved if I work really, really hard to persevere to death. But if that was true, it actually upends all of Scripture and the book of Hebrews. Jesus, in John 10, says, I give eternal life. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, there's there's a line, if you look at verse 12 quickly, it says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you all to fall away from the living God. So who are those who will fall away from the living God? Those with evil, unbelieving hearts. So there's a division here between verse one, holy brothers who share in heavenly calling and those with evil, unbelieving hearts. So when we look at this phrase, we are his house in verse six, if indeed we hold fast to our confession, it's not saying we receive salvation because we work really, really hard. It's saying that we persevere as a sign and evidence and a proof that we are saved. Did you catch the reversal there? Did you follow me? We're not saved because we work hard at staying saved No, we persevere and believe as a proof that Jesus has saved us. As an example, I told you that they got afraid of those on the other side of the border. You see, Moses had sent spies to the other side, and 12 spies went in, and 12 spies came out. And two spies had a very different story than the other 10. The 10 said, we are not going to make it. 
They're going to defeat us. Our wives and our children will become prey. They will walk all over us. But Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can because our Lord is with us. And if he's pleased with us, he will deliver them into our hands. This has never been about what we can do. This has always been about the strength and the will and the work of God. So we're comparing Team Moses to Team Jesus, comparing the leaders. Now let's look at the outcome of the followers in Team Moses. Let's start at verse seven. And right here, this is our author of Hebrews, and he is quoting Psalm 95 that Moses wrote about whenever the people rebelled against God. So verse seven, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, talking about David's psalm, today, if you hear his voice, hear with your ears, hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The rebellion, talking about that time when they turned on Moses and doubted God. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their, where? In their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they will not enter my rest. So a couple of things I want you to hear and recognize. In your mind, draw a big circle over. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then we come again to verse 10. They always go astray in their hearts. We have to begin here at understanding that God is not concerned with our works only. God sees our hearts. He knew the hearts of every one of those men and women that were going to die in the wilderness. He knew exactly where they stood. And because of where they stood, because of the hardness of their hearts, because of the evil of their hearts, they provoked God. They rebelled against God. They provoked God. And God swore in his wrath, they will not enter my rest. So what did they harden their hearts against? God's voice. And why did they rebel? The end of verse 10, they have not known my ways. Had they actually known God, not just watched what he did, not just up here and had knowledge, had they known God's heart, they would have known that he was a God of mercy and a God of justice and a God of love and a God of patience and a God of wrath. They would have known who God was. And so what is God's response to their rebellion? He was provoked. He loathed that generation. And so he excluded them from the promise. So why is the author bringing up this story? He wants to bring me and you to remember this tragedy that happened at the border of Canaan because me and you may be standing at a border right now. We may be at a fork in the road tonight. And our author here is not concerned with giving us time to think about this down the road. He wants us to consider Jesus tonight. Hebrews 3.12, let's pick up. Take care, brothers. So he's talking to these people, the people he's writing to. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, just like those in the, the wilderness, leading you to fall away from the living God 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our hearts are so deceitful. In fact, Jeremiah says that our heart is deceitful above everything else. And it's desperately sick. So every time you hear someone in society or scrolling on Instagram or on YouTube or a Disney movie say, follow your hearts, go with your gut, do what you feel, think to yourselves, Jeremiah 17.9, actually my heart is deceitful. It actually gets a lot of things wrong and it's actually trying to confuse me many times because my heart's desperately sick apart from Jesus Christ. We can't just go with our hearts because our hearts may be hard. Think about the parable that Jesus told about the seed landing on four different soils. There was one particular soil that was the soil of thorns. And the seed lands and it begins to grow. And maybe that's some of us in here, we get real excited, we're like, yes, okay, I'm getting it. But then the thorns choke out this young plant. And when they asked Jesus, what did that mean? Jesus said, look, some people get really excited about the word, which is Jesus's words to us. But then the cares of this world, maybe difficulties come, things that we want a lot more because our deceitful hearts are telling us this is more important. Those things come and they, they choke out what is good. They choke out the word of God in us. Which is why our, our buddy here in Hebrews 3.13 is reminding us to care about each other. Verse 13, exhort one another, encourage one each other, push one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, because sin is so tempting. Sin looks so beautiful when it's tempting us, but it is so disgusting in hindsight. Think about how destructive sin was for these people in Team Moses that 600 died in the wilderness. 600,000 at least died in the wilderness. We can't live our lives saying, God, I'm not ready yet. Just show me more signs. If, if you'll do this, then I'll believe. Give me more, more time. I'm, I'm gonna live my life my way now. And then later, then I'll come around and consider it. These people saw the signs. These people were brought to the promise that was given to them for 400 years. They were excited about this promise and they're standing at the border. We can't wait that long. Without a shock to our heart, without a splash of cold water to our face, without some pretty forward scriptures, the length of God's patient grace will end before you're ready. We need to exhort each other. So I gotta ask you, who's keeping you accountable? Who's Who's nudging you? Who's constantly challenging you? And who are you challenging? To drive this point home, our author is going to spend some time asking some rhetorical questions. And these rhetorical questions are making two big points. Their sin was unbelief, but what didn't they believe in? They didn't believe in God's word. Verse 16, for who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt? led by Moses, and with whom 
Was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter the rest because of unbelief. So that's the outcome of the followers of Team Moses. But what's the outcome of the followers of Team Jesus? Let's start in verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This is reminding us back to Psalm 95. And he's talking about this word, rest. When God created the world in six days, on the seventh day, he rested. Not because God was exhausted, but because it was a sign of God saying, it's done, it's good, it's perfect, it's finished. Therefore, there's only rest. And David, way back when, is saying that God was calling his people to something more than just land. He was calling them into that rest that God was in. The rest that Adam and Eve were in before they sinned, where they were in God's, in relationship with God. When God's presence would be with them walking in the garden, that there is a rest that's more than just a stretch of land between two waters. But not only did the Israelites lose physical land, they lost something more. They lost being in the presence of God with their souls at rest. And so he's saying that the promise of entering that rest, actually, it's still available. It's still standing. They missed it. They didn't receive it. But there's more. So there's good news, and the good news is that this promise still stands open, but the bad news, what does he say here? He says, lest, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The bad news is there's some in God's house, in God's family, who have hard hearts that are missing it. I like the way the Jewish Bible translates this. It's, therefore, let us be terrified of the possibility that, even though the promise of entering his rest remains, any one of you might be judged to have fallen short of it. Boy, let that rattle us a little bit. If we have hard hearts, we may not even know. Our hearts are deceitful. We may be self-deceiving ourselves. But God's rest wasn't just for him. God's rest didn't just end then God's rest still stands and he is saying that the doors are open for God's family to enter it, to be a part of it. So what is God's rest? There's two, three different levels of God's rest. One, as we're going to see in verse 10, it's a rest from works. And we don't, we don't have to do and do and do and do to try to please God enough for him to save us anymore. Well, we never did. A rest from works means that it's all grace. If you have to earn salvation, then there's no such thing as grace. But if you turn to God saying, I have nothing to offer you, Lord, save me. Then what Jesus did at the cross for you is grace. It's not about works. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to fight 
tooth and nail. You don't have to say the right prayers at the right time. It's only grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's belief. And this is not of your doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's a rest from works. Two, we have rest in salvation. We were freed from sin, from slavery to sin. And there's a punishment that comes with it. Not only are you a slave to sin, but the end is death, period. And we can rest now that there's no fear in death. There's no fear in tomorrow because God has empowered us with the Holy Spirit to say no to our old master that no longer has chains on us anymore. There's a rest of salvation. And third, there's a future rest of enjoying God's presence forever. We're going to savor eternity without sickness, without pain, without strife or wars or worries or depression, anxiety. We will be in the safe and loving arms of the God who loves us, who created us for relationship. Our author here is teaching us that those in Team Jesus experience a rest that surpasses anything Moses offered eternally enjoying God's presence. And it can begin <laughs> now. Verse six. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, God appoints a certain day today saying, through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Even under Joshua, when they entered the land, the people the next generation had hard hearts, disobeyed God, and ended up again and again oppressed by the people around them, again and again disobeying and falling back into sin. And David, 500 years later, is saying they didn't get it, but the day of rest, the opportunity of rest, the doorway of rest stands open. When can you take advantage of it? Today. Today, we, we don't have time to drag our feet. It should rattle us that maybe you or the people around you are dying with their hard hearts. It needs to jolt us a little bit. We need to self-examine a little bit. Where are we between us and God? <coughs> 85 years ago, a man living in Long Island, New York, purchased a barometer Y'all want to know what a barometer is? You can tell when rain is coming. But when he opened it up out of the box, the little needle, the indicator, was broken. It was stuck. And it was conveniently stuck, pointing at hurricane. So the man shook it, which is not something that you do with a delicate piece of machinery like that. And he gave up, and he wrote a scathing letter to the company that he bought it from. 
And the next day, he drove in to New York City where he worked, dropped off his letter, and after work, he headed home. And when he got home, the barometer was gone because his house was gone. Because it was the 1938 hurricane that almost wiped out Long Island. The evidence was there in front of him, black and white and plain, but he missed it. What do we see here? We see that now is the time to make a decision. We're standing, some of us, at a border, at a fork in the road. Will you harden your hearts or will you believe? Will you trust in the word of God? Will you soften your hearts to hear and obey him? 2 Corinthians 5 says, we employ you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Elevate, if you hear his voice through God's word tonight, don't harden your heart. Do you trust that Jesus died for you? Do you trust him and make him the Lord of your life? Do you trust him enough to be obedient? That's faith. And the evidence of that faith is going to be obedience. So how do I get on team Jesus? We've compared Moses to Jesus. We've looked at the outcome of those who followed Moses. We've looked at the outcome of those who followed Jesus. Rest, three different kinds of rest. But how do I get on team Jesus? Let's pick up in verse 11. Let us therefore strive, work hard, strain, Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here we go. All right, verse 12, I want you to know, like you could draw a line in your mind over to verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, what is God's voice? Where do we hear God's voice? Where do we find it? Right here, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. How do we strive? With everything we have, we hear the good news. The word here in these two chapters is used seven times. Good news is used twice. We strive by hearing God's word. And what is the good news that we listen to? It's right here. It's the Bible. And how does it describe it? It's a sword. For them, a Roman short sword was like a dagger. It was meant for, for piercing. It's living and active, meaning that it's constantly being used by the intentional Holy Spirit it's two-edged. There's no dull side. It's going to get the job done completely. And it acts like a microscope, and it acts like a judge of our hearts. It lays out our hearts and examines them and says, this is a heart submitted to Jesus, or this is heart of stone hardened in disbelief. So how do we enter Team Jesus we believe in God's word, in the words of Jesus Christ. Where can we find them? Right here. And no creature is hidden by his sight. God is totally omniscient. He knows exactly what's going on inside of us. We can't fake it to God. So check if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. 
2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine whether you're in the faith or not. We all need to take this test. A preacher was packing to go preach. And he organized his suitcase perfectly. But he left one little corner of empty space. And his son sitting on the bed said, Dad, what are you going to put in that space? Everything's so organized. And he said, well, son, right here is where I have enough room for bread when I'm hungry, for fire to keep me warm, for a hammer to build with, for light in dark places, for milk to nourish me, a map to guide me, seed to plant for harvest, and a sword to fight with. And the son said, how are you going to fit all that in a little space? And the father said, I put my Bible there. And in God's word, I have everything I need. Recap, because Jesus is superior to Moses, we must listen to his word. Jesus is our prophet, and he's our priest. Those who followed Moses doubted and rebelled against God and were punished for it. Those who follow Jesus will receive his rest. And what is his rest? It's a rest from works. It's a rest in salvation, and it's eternal rest in God's loving presence. How do we follow Jesus? We obey his word. I challenge you to examine yourselves. Tonight, today is the day of salvation. And I challenge you to decide on 15 minutes somewhere in your day to open up God's word on your phone or a physical Bible. Read it. Ask yourself, what does this teach us about God? And obey it. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. Your word that you gave to your people throughout time that we can study and hear, that we can listen to what you're saying today from what you have already said. Lord, I pray you are opening up hearts tonight, that you're replacing hearts of flesh with hearts of stone, that you're opening eyes, that you're pulling back a veil. Lord, that your people are being challenged tonight. Oh, Father, save every man and woman in this room. I beg you, Lord, that they will turn and believe in you and follow you. May every one of us enter into your rest. We love you, Lord, and we surrender in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.